Senator from the state of New Jersey, Mr. Cory Booker. That's a Hawkeye welcome right there. The people's champ is here. <laughs> so, Senator Booker, I am First of all, thank you. You guys have a, a platform that is pretty powerful, and I think your podcast not only does it reach a lot of people, but it informs them and engages them, hopefully even inspires them to be more of a part of what uh, the change that we need in this nation. So I'm just grateful that you all are doing this, and as uh, fellow African Americans, look, Black radio has had a powerful force, movement-building element. If you go back to the 60s and the role that black radio played in our communities, it was essential to the movement. And I think what you all are doing is an outgrowth of that, and so I'm particularly grateful. Thank you so much for that. We appreciate that. Okay, Senator Booker, I'm not gonna waste any time. I'm gonna get right to it. You've run tough races before and now you're currently seeking the highest office in the land. But you're doing it alongside of some incredibly talented individuals that are making um, for a historic field. Yes. So tell us, what's your plan to win this thing? What's your pathway to victory? And why are you the best candidate to take on Donald Trump? Well, let me reverse the order because I think <laughs> why run is the, probably the most important question. And, Look, I think the life is about purpose and not position. I got into politics back in 1998 as a city council person because I lived in the neighborhood I still live in right now, an inner city, black and brown community below the poverty line. Folks looked down on us, overlooked us, underestimate us, tried to cast us aside. And I got in there to fight for people like that. And here I am, you know, uh, two decades later plus, and we still have a nation where there's too many communities being left out, left aside. And on top of that, folks think the forces pulling us apart in America are stronger than the forces holding us together. And so my career has been about running at the toughest problems and showing that I can't solve the problems, but we can. If we pull together, create stronger coalitions, we could achieve things that other people think are impossible. And so I'm running because I believe in us. I don't think we need saviors. I think we need each other. And I think that we are at a time where we have a politics of tribalism, which is fear-based, us versus them, uh, 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 you know, zero-sum game politics, and we need to have in our country a revival of civic grace, a more courageous em empathy. We need to put more united back into this one nation under God so that we can actually solve the problems that are on, in my neighborhood. And, I, and this is one of my biggest worries in this election. Uh, on my block, stuff was going wrong before Donald Trump was elected. You know, on my block, Shahad Smith was killed with an assault rifle on my block last year. That was going on before Donald Trump was elected. On my block, I have my neighbors who work longer hours than my hardworking parents, but still at my bodega on the corner, they still need food stamps. Because right now we've stripped the just, we, for decades now we're stripping the dignity from work. On my block, I live right across the street from this great drug treatment program, Integrity House it's called. When I go over there and sit with the fellas, and they don't like it when I bring vegan food, but, uh, <laughs> and they tell their stories about how their drug addictions or mental health issues were treated with jail and prison and not healthcare and treatment. All of this stuff, including the fact that there are kids in my city that drink out of bottled water because there are 3 million, there are 3,000 jurisdictions in America where children have more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. 
So for us as a party to make this, I, I hear, and I hear voters, the one thing, number one thing that's polling right now is just want a candidate to beat Donald Trump. To me, that is the floor, it is not the ceiling. It, it may get us out of the valley. It may get us out of the valley, but I got into politics to get to the mountaintop. And, and so I'm running every single day to let's not make this about one guy in one office because I don't want to return to the grand old days of 2012 and 2014 uh, when stuff was still not working for the most Americans. I'm running to get ourselves to focus, to keep our eyes on the prize. This is a moral moment in America. We need to come together better than we are now and actually solve the real challenges that are facing this nation and our generation. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and by the way, this idea, I get the, I get the viability question all the time. Look, y'all you all know this in Iowa. Uh, uh, I, I, get, I just had a reporter ask me like nine times about, well, how are you going to, you're not doing well in the polls. And I'm like, please, this far out, the people winning, running, winning in the polls were, are not the people that usually become the nominee. And the people that excited me in politics, like Barack Obama was polling in the single digits going into the uh, Iowa year, what wins in Iowa is connecting to people building organization. We're gonna win the, 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 the caucuses here because we've got the best organization on the ground. Uh, we are, are going and, and getting endorsements from folks. I put my endorsements in this state uh, from people that actually make a difference in caucuses up against anybody in the race. Uh, and we are, we are having town halls, and the great thing about the town halls here is that we get incredible percentages of people that come to hear me speak that will be willing to sign a commitment to caucus cards. So we win Iowa caucuses, we win New Hampshire, even if we're in the top three coming out of those states. You guys know this, as four black folks sitting up here. The party changes very dramatically, with African Americans being the majority in so many of the key primary states after that, even 30, 40% significant populations. There's been nobody who's won the nomination since Carter, except for when I was just with Jesse Jackson when he ran. But the black vote usually consolidates around the people we think most authentically will work for, speak to, and deal with our issues and the issues of other communities that struggle like we do. And so I'm really confident this is the proving ground for the 2020 election. This will be the culling field, to, to use that metaphor. Uh, and then coming out of this, we'll have the momentum we need uh, to win the primary. So, Senator, you were, as you were talking about um, your neighborhood and, and your neighborhood prior to Trump being elected, it sort of uh, was speaking to me in the context of how we talk about our times, these times right now, and how divisive things seem. Would you say that we are more divisive now than we were uh, pre-Trump? What would you say about Well, that? I mean, look at the long arc of history, yeah. and, and, you know, I have family that, you know, my, my grandmother was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. Her cousin's still here, 100 years old. When you sit talking with our elders about what it used to be like, um, we had some pretty viciously divided times uh, where, where people used to escape to Iowa uh, 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 from just the terrible sins of looking at somebody white the wrong way. We had literally, people forget, we just had the anniversary of the bombing, one of the only aerial bombings of a town was, a, was Black Wall Street in, in Oklahoma. Uh, we had terrorism in our communities like never before. Thousands and thousands of African Americans ripped from their homes, lynched at night, murdered, disappeared. And so to talk about this in the context of history is really important about the challenges we have. Now, I'm not unmindful of the fact that I now live in a time, my dad said this to me, that was so haunting when my father was born in the Jim Crow South in the mountains of North Carolina, a segregated community to a single mom. And he looked at me, 
I, when I was living in the projects in Newark, I moved in there for almost a decade, one of the toughest housing complexes, and we had just, a, a shooting just happened of another black youth in our community, and he says to me, son, I really worry. This is my most optimistic, funny, incredible father, who said to me, I really worry that a, a, a young black boy born like me, poor, to a single mother in a segregated community, would have a better chance of making it if they were born in 1936 than the challenges facing us today. And I'm a data guy, and, and I, uh, you know, when I became mayor, I, I just studied numbers all the time. And I, when I looked at the numbers of the challenges facing young black boys who live in segregated environments, let's, let's be real, it is not de jure segregation anymore. New Jersey is one of the fifth most segregated states in the nation. That, that the challenge is facing it, like we, we, we rightfully are talking about the horrors of mass shootings in America. But let us not forget that between 50 and 60% of the homicide victims in America are African American men. Let us not forget that we now have a system of Jim Crow in this country and a criminal justice system that, as Brian Stevenson says, treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. That has so horrifically under our watch, since 1980, gone up 500%. Between the time I was in law school and the time I was mayor of the city of Newark, we were building a new prison every 10 days to warehouse overwhelmingly nonviolent offenders. And now we've gotten to the tragic present where there's no difference between blacks and whites <coughs> for, for using drugs or selling drugs. But the racial disparities in incarceration, you're almost four times more likely to be incarcerated. Here in Iowa, you have one of the worst states in America for racial disparities in incarceration. And so we now are at the distraught present, this is reflecting uh, uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, that we now have more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves in 1850. And, and so we have, yeah, we've come a long way in this country. There's things that we should celebrate, the victories of our ancestors. But to now be at a point in American history where those gains, I'm watching them attack voting rights, I'm watching them attack civil rights. I, I'm watching a president roll back protections for black and brown kids going to schools with the school to prison pipeline, not to mention for LGBTQ kids. I, I, and by the way, LGBTQ, I mean trans, the murders of trans uh, uh, women, black trans women is, is horrific. I'm watching a, 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 a nation where right now where we're seeing voter suppression schemes, where we're seeing so many of the gains, women's rights, so many of the gains that my parents' generation fought and won now be under attack and, and being rolled back. And so I agree with you. Uh, look, we, we should celebrate the fact that we are a nation, black and brown, Christian, I mean, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner dying together. We, we are where we are because we created these powerful coalitions that overcame so much. But why is it now? Now, what happened to our empathy for each other? Let me give you the, the thing that makes me so angry, that I grew up listening to the stories of this nation responding to tragic deaths. Four girls were killed in a bombing in Birmingham. The whole country rose up after that. Even go back further to the shirtwaist factory fire, if you know your history, where in the worst of working conditions, women trapped in sweatshops in a fire threw themselves out windows to die on the pavement below we responded. People from all backgrounds said we need to change workers' conditions and workers' rights. But now, slaughtered in a church in South Carolina, we do nothing. Slaughtered in a, in, in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, we do nothing. 
concert in Las Vegas, nothing. A, 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 a nightclub in Orlando, nothing. Children hiding under their desks, murdered one by one, and we do nothing. And in my community, people like Shahad killed every single day. Why am I running for president? Because I know who we are. And I know that this is a moment where it's not about one guy, it's about who we are gonna be to each other. It's a referendum on the soul of our nation. And we need leaders that are gonna call us again to be a, a beloved community that, that tightens the bonds between us so we can solve our problems. Senator Booker, you're, you're alluding to this, um, but your campaign has released probably the most ambitious and comprehensive gun reform policy measure uh, of any campaign running for president to date. Um, can you talk to us about that policy proposal? And I think, and then my second question, and more importantly, why do you think that if you're elected president, that you can finally move the needle on this issue? Oh, I love, I love because we've been here before. We've sort of, yes. you know, thoughts and prayers. Yeah. We, you know, get outraged, Simeon. like you're doing right now. Oh, I love you, Simeon. I, I love you for the question. But we're it's the right question. Okay. I mean, it really is the right question. Like, come on, Booker. We we had another black dude who was president, and and he tried these things. What's going to make you different? So let me just first say the the obvious uh, about my proposal. I mean, I, you, you literally, if you go to my neighborhood and people look at my proposal, the, the, the press is calling it like the boldest proposal on gun violence that any presidential candidate at any time has ever put forward. People in my neighborhood are like, come on, that's like a, that's like a, a good step. <laughs> we need to do a lot more. Mm -hmm. Because if you live in a community where literally children are, when they hear firecrackers on the 4th of July, they're not celebrating America, parents will tell you stories about kids hiding under beds or showing signs of post-traumatic stress. So what, what people in my neighborhood are, are shocked about is like, why have we become so impotent in our ambition that we are allowing the corporate gun lobby for decades now to frame this debate? It's so insidious that most Americans don't even know that this is the one industry that has exempted itself from, from negligence suits. If your iPhone blows up and scratches your cornea, you could sue Apple. If your gun blows up because of negligence, you can't sue. This is the, this is the industry that's exempted itself from consumer protection uh, a finance, uh, excuse me, consumer protection uh, 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 commission that looks at computer product safety. It's, it's actually taken all this talk about the demagoguery of migrant, poor migrants trying to come into this country. You know how much billions of dollars we've done to increase the numbers of Customs and Border Patrol agents, of people involved in immigration, and based upon, you hear the president talk, I mean, he uses the language, this is why knowing history is so important, he uses language like a political party of our past called the know-nothings, mm -hmm. same language, trying to then stop Irish and Italian immigrants, trying to make us afraid of, of, of people coming from the southern border with brown skin. But, but you know how many deaths have happened in terrorism since 9-11, and where that has come from? As much as he wants to make us afraid of, of, of people trying to come here escaping terror, not remembering like when we turned away other immigrants trying to escape terror, there was a, a ship that came here during World War II with a bunch of folks trying to escape the Holocaust and we turned it around where they got killed in the Holocaust. We, the shame of that, we, we think we would learn our lesson about people coming here to seek asylum, escaping terror. But, but, but think about this, since 9-11, the majority of our terrorist attacks 
have not been foreign terrorists. They've been right-wing extremist groups, the majority of those white supremacist groups, who are using guns to go in our synagogues and our churches and shoot people. The one agency that is in charge, we remember, billions of dollars of increases. Undocumented immigration is actually historically down right now. But, but we are having, since, since in the last 50 years, more people die of gun violence than all the wars that died in gun violence, of all the wars combined from the Revolutionary War till now. And the terrorism, the problem we have, as we saw in, 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 in Las Vegas and, 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 and recently in Virginia Beach, there are people who are getting guns. And the one agency that investigates that has been purposely starved of resources. When I was mayor and trying to stop the guns coming into Newark, because we don't have any gun manufacturers in Newark, I went down to meet with the head of the ATF and, and other ATF agents, and they were so candid with me. They are like, we don't have the resources to enforce the laws that we have. So that's who's been framing the debate, and that's the insidious things they've been doing. And, and so by putting forth a bold plan, it for, suddenly forces the conversation to shift. And I'm glad that every presidential candidate had to respond to my plan, because they should. And, and, and so how are we going to get this done? This is why I'm happy to be sitting up with some hip-hop generation folks <laughs> who, who understand that so much of change has to be creative. Mm. You, the creative artists of our past, do you think that Dorothea Cotton uh, and James Bevel, who challenged King in, in, in May of 1963 and said, dude, you're going to lose here in Birmingham. That's not how they said it, by the way. <laughs> they said, uh, Dr. King. <laughs> um, we, let's creatively think of something. And they decided to do what I think Taylor Branch in his book called The Children's Miracle. They, these young people said to King, if you organize children to march in front of Bull Connor, you are going to awaken this country. And when people at home in Iowa and New Jersey watch children getting bitten by dogs, suddenly it raised the consciousness of, of this country because the power of the people is always greater than the people in power. And so what I tell folks is you are going to have a president that has an experience with getting impossible things done with, with, with the coalition. Hell, the, I couldn't even get supermarkets to come to Newark. They, the first time I went out to a Las Vegas to talk to a supermarket chain, they laughed at me. It was so insulting, I just said under my breath, you will be in Newark. And I had to think of creative things. Here's a funny story for you. I was sitting at home watching TV. Late night talk show hosts love to kick cities in the gut. They make Chicago jokes, listen to TV. They make Chicago jokes, Detroit jokes. They love to kick often black and brown communities who are struggling, the violent. And so I just waited. And Conan O'Brien came on TV, this is back when he was on The Tonight Show, and says, I hear Newark, New Jersey has a great new healthcare program. And I was proud. I did stuff to lower the prescription drug costs in my city. And he said, but I think the best healthcare program for the city of Newark is a bus ticket out of town. And I was like, okay, it's on. <laughs> and I went to the city hall, got a young person, and I remember, people talk about Trump using Twitter. Most people say that I was one of the original Twitter innovators. And what I did this time was, you know, put on TV. I, I put on the twi Twitter, I put on a video, had a young millennial film me and say, I'm Cory Booker. I bragged about my city by the power invested in me by the city of Newark. Conan O'Brien, you've insulted us. I hereby ban you from Newark Airport. You're on the no-fly list. Try JFK, buddy. <laughs> the video goes viral. So viral that the TSA put a clarification on their website <laughs> that Americans do, that American mayors cannot ban people from their airport. <laughs> I started getting all this earned media. Next thing you know, Conan goes back on his show. You think he would have been done and apologized, but he doubles down uh -huh. and bans me from Burbank Airport. Now, folks out here in Iowa, you know that if you're flying to LA, you're flying to LAX. But heck, <laughs> I was okay. I was like, it's on. I do a video again, banning him from the whole state of New Jersey. It becomes the number one trending story in America. 
No Newark mayor could have ever gone on the Jay Leno show. And all, I'm getting more earned media in a month for my city. Every show I brag about our city, how great we are, how, power, how we don't mistake wealth with worth. We may be low income, but we are scrappy, we are strong, our communities have value. And before you know it, I'm all over national TV, number one trending story, Conan invites me on a show, apologizes on national TV, gives $100,000 to Newark Charities, but that's not the best thing of the story. Now folk know who I am. I call foundations, they return my call. I call developers, we, get develop we built our first new hotels in 40 years in Newark, our first new office towers in decades. Literally, we got hundreds of millions of dollars of new philanthropy for our city. Now I'm telling people to turn Newark around, we had to change the moral imagination of a nation, see the value and the worth of our community. If I am your president, I'm gonna use the powers given to me by the Constitution, but I ain't stopping there. I come from a legacy of organizers, of grassroots artists who found ways to build the kind of coalitions to get things done. You think we got civil rights done because Bull Connor one day woke up and said, I think those Negro people should get some rights. No. He, the longest filibuster in the Senate what was, is still his, stopping civil rights legislation. We overcame him because we mounted the moral imagination of a nation, called to the consciousness of a country that said enough is enough. Governments are formed. Read our founding documents for the common defense. And now the carnage in our country is at greater levels in some areas that are in war. We will find a way to solve this problem. I will be the president that gets it done. Senator Booker, I'm going to try to cover a few more topics while we, while we got you. That's your kind way to say, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're giving us like lectures on every answer for crying out loud. We love it. We love it. So it seems like uh, presidential candidates are finally starting to have conversations about issues that progressives have cared about for a long time. Um, the legalization of marijuana and the thousands of individuals behind bars who have been prosecuted for petty marijuana crimes, many of whom are persons of color. Uh, ta Coates uh, penned, I think, one of the most compelling cases for reparations that I've read in the modern era. And now we've do got other Do you link to that in the show notes? Because people should. I, I, we will make a point to do that. Yeah, please. Uh, and now we're talking about universal health care and whether or not health care is a right or a privilege. And we're finally having that conversation about whether or not education ought to be a universal uh, right or a privilege for people. So, you know, I listed a few issues, but can you, can you let us know where you're at on some of these big ticket issues that progressives yeah. care about? So, um, you know, marijuana legalization, reparations, uh, health care and education. So you, you know I'm the lead probably Senator uh, with, the, with a couple others like Dick Durbin on criminal justice reform period. More marijuana arrests in 2017 than violent crime arrests combined and overwhelmingly disproportionately low income people. They don't stop folks at Stanford University for and pat them down for marijuana, uh, but they stop folks in, in low income communities. So uh, I, I actually led in the Senate on this issue. And the first time I proposed marijuana legalization bills, trust me, people looked at me like I was crazy that it had no chance, but now the bar is moving and we will win. We're gonna end prohibition for marijuana on the federal level, let the states do what they, they have, they, can, they must. But hold on, anybody who has this conversation, and I, get, I, get, I, I talk to a lot of folks about this, do not talk to me about legalizing marijuana if you're not talking to me about expunging the records of people who have been unjustly. 
Um, again, I, I am the person in the Senate that, that sponsored the legislation all, to, to pull together the brightest minds like ta Coates and to create a national commission on the issue of reparations. And it's because we live in a country where my family even, just to move into the house I grew up in, we had to get a white couple to pose as us. That the legacies going back to slavery that have created massive economic disparities, all of us have an interest. All of us should have an interest about leveling the economic playing field. And my legislation is very simple. Let's bring together the best minds in the country on how to deal with this issue, to make recommendations, uh, um, and that's something that I'm gonna continue to say time and time again, because people don't understand the d drama of the black-white wealth disparities in America. I mean, you have cities like Boston where the average white family's wealth is about $250,000. The average black family is about $8. Mm. And, and, and folks don't understand the compounding problems of things like mass incarceration. Vanderbilt University did an incredible study that shows we'd have 20% less poverty in America if we had incarceration rates same as our industrial peers. Well, if incarceration is disproportionately targeted to African Americans, you are impoverishing African Americans' communities through this new Jim Crow. I can go back to why is Newark Newark? Because of redlining and, uh, 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 and, and, and FHA loans that, that completely walled off communities to wealth. The GI Bill, Social Security, I can go through, the explicit design was to exclude pathways for African Americans to create generational wealth. This is about balancing the economic scales. And by the way, if, if those scales are balanced, all of us do better because wealth is, has a multiplier effect in this nation. We all live in an ecosystem that's not zero-sum game. If you, your family does better, my family does worse. It's actually the opposite. If your family does better, then everybody does better. Excellent. Hit us, hit us with a few positions on universal health care, universal education. I mean, we, I think that we are at a point where even Republicans will poll and say we should not live in a nation where somebody puts aside life-saving medication because they can't afford it. I think that even Republicans will say, hey, when children are born, they should have access to health care. And that the shame in this nation of leading industrial nations in infant mortality, in maternal mortality, we live on a planet Earth that the most valuable natural resource any nation has is the genius of their children. And other countries now, they know that brain development is done most from like the second trimester to the third or fourth year. Other countries have universal access to health care. Uh, other countries have doula care, something I've been advocating for for low-income women. Other countries have uh, a prenatal care. It's not in, in the emergency room. Other uh, countries have postpartum care. that puts ours to shame. Other countries have universal preschool. They have universal child care. They have uh, affordable child care. They have paid family leave. All of these things should be fundamental in our democracy. And so I believe healthcare is a right. And the next president on day one should start doing things to bring down the cost of healthcare and expand access. And that's what I'm gonna do. There's pragmatic things that we could dramatically drop the levels of prescription drug costs. Heck, other countries literally have laws that prescription, the pharmaceutical companies can't raise their drug prices higher than they're selling the same drug in other countries. We pay for the research for these global drugs that are solving problems, but yet you get charged 5X, 10X in the United States for the same drug. Well, if I'm president, we're gonna push a law that says, if you do that, pharmaceutical company, we're taking away your patents and your exclusivity, and we're gonna let generics undercut you. Common sense things that other countries do that we're not doing to control costs and expand access. And on education. Look, there is no pathway in a democracy to be a great nation but through education. And it has to be a commitment in this country to public schools. 
And, and so I, I, don't, I come out to Iowa, unlike New Jersey, and y'all, like, I really, like, the fact that there's not, and I know this outrage because I've met men in so many town halls, but your legislature is attacking teachers in ways that are unconscionable. They're attacking teachers' teachers' right to organize. They're attacking teachers' rights to benefits. They're attacking public school funding. They're coming up with schemes that to, to, will, will, will result in the destruction of public schools as we know it in this state, and frankly, the resegregation in many communities of education in this country. Look, I'm the only person in this race that probably had to take on directly, or actually I didn't have to, it wasn't my job as mayor, we have a school system that's separate, but I stepped up and said, I I'm sorry, we cannot have a, a city that thrives. I'm willing to risk my political capital to turn a school system around. And, and we had tons of community meetings where we shared values and shared ideals, and then we ran at that problem. And what did we do? We closed our low-performing charter schools that, that were not serving the genius of our kids. We said, time out, your charter school, you can't cream and take the best students. In fact, we created a one-enrollment system. We told the good schools, you have to expand. We expanded our magnet schools. We created a system of education now in America, as I said earlier. It, we are now the best, in fact, if you're a black kid in my city, and it's a majority black city, your chances of going to a high-performing school that beats the suburbs, the wealthiest suburbs, went up 400%. We now are the number one school system in America for beat the odds schools according to Washington. And so I got my teachers, my, my state teachers union's endorsement twice because I said, look, on the federal level, we should focus on two things. And that's, this is the first two things I'm gonna focus on. There's a third, which I'll mention. The first thing is we must raise public school teachers' salaries, period. <laughs> and we can do it, we can do it by saying, you know what? carried interest for these folks who work on, in hedge funds, you pay a lower percentage of your salary uh, in taxes than a teacher does, well, let's reverse that. Let's give teachers a special tax bracket and school professionals, because we shouldn't just talk about teachers, it's psychological professionals that work in our schools, nurses that work in our schools. We should say that you are gonna get a lower tax bracket which will effectively raise your salary. And we're gonna, your student debt, for people that are willing to teach, we should forgive their student debt and do it rapidly. Number two. We, we, we do not do what we should do for Americans with special needs. And, and in our schools, we massively underfund special needs education. And if we did that, especially for low-income districts, it would bring millions of dollars to our public schools. I will do that as President of the United States. And the number three thing I said, which is really important, but we don't talk about it enough, what Betsy DeVos has done to the Department of Civil Rights within the education, she has completely gutted it, reversed what Obama was doing on the school-to-prison pipeline, reverse protection for, for our trans children and LGBTQ rights. We've gotta have a president that stands up and says every kid should have a school that, that is free of bullying and violence because 30% of LGBTQ kids admit missing school at some point for fear for their safety. We should have a president stands up that says, I'm gonna create an America that has a public school system that works for every child, no matter your zip code, no matter your race, no matter your religion, uh, no matter who you are, we are gonna be a country that educates all children. And that's how, it's the only way to lead this planet in your, through your economy is to lead the planet through your education system. Could you drill into that just a little bit more regarding your experience in Newark with, uh, with public ed versus charter schools and uh, talking a little bit about how you see nationwide that combination of charter, magnet, public ed working? Um, yeah, look, the, for us, the, we saw 
charters in our city as a mixed bag. We had low performing charters and we had these extraordinarily high performing charters. And so we went after and to close the low performing charters. For the ones that were succeeding, we challenged them and say, you, you, you can't have different rules that apply when it comes to things like enrollment, because you might end up with the most activist parents going to those schools. And by the way, we don't have private charter schools. I, private prisons, I can go through the things that I just don't think should be privatized. Um, and so we just said, join us in creating something that's unique in, a, in this country, which is a, a, a system that is one school system that every parent now doesn't have to go through multiple enrollment processes, but every parent, no matter what your background, can participate in that system. It stops creaming, it creates uh, a lot of equality. In fact, we share teacher training in Newark now, and I'm really proud of that. But let's be clear, charters are only 3% of our, of our nation's schools. A lot of big deals made out of it. And, and what I told my statewide, most of my kids, over 90%, are going to uh, uh, public schools. And by the way, I fought against charters opening in some places they just don't belong. You, you imagine a rural area having a charter school. It would just be create unnecessary competition, pulling resources, uh, ripping resources apart. So for our local community, a densely populated black and brown community, it worked. But as President of the United States, my focus is all kids, and our kids are going to, as I said, in 3% charters, we need to focus on traditional public schools and empowering them. Now, magnets are an interesting question because they're, I talked to somebody earlier who's a magnet school teacher, and I had a lot of my residents complaining that their kids couldn't get into magnet schools and how they were creaming and the like. And I defended magnet schools, and I said, what we're gonna do in Newark is we're gonna ask our magnet schools to expand too, so they become more operational, and we're gonna make sure that our comprehensive high schools and other schools raise their performance, and we're gonna do that uh, by getting resources there and the like, because we do not want to create a system uh, that's bifurcated. We want to create an integrated system. So nationally, as President of the United States, those are my three goals that I think we can achieve in my first term. Raising public school teachers' salaries and public school professional salaries, uh, supporting our special needs kids, and getting back to making sure public education works for all children from all backgrounds. We end discrimination, end the school-to-prison pipeline, keep kids safe, and thriving so that they can go on. Um, but I want to say one more thing. Because every kid's not going to college, 35% of kids do. And one of the things I think we're making a mistake is not preparing kids for the jobs of the 21st century. This is why one of the things that, that uh, I supported in Newark that I think we need more of in America is Votech schools that actually have federal funding. They're actually federal funding programs that fund school kids to get training for, that, that, that they might want to do. Being, working on cars is gonna be something that's gonna be there, but you need to have serious computer training to do that now, it should start in high school. So I wanna see that expanded as well, and I'll be one of those presidents that works towards creating a, an apprenticeship program that starts in high school for kids, the community colleges, and, and going forward. I wanna shift focus just a little bit. Um, we're in Iowa City, Iowa, uh, Johnson County, which is often referred to as the Republic of Johnson County because of its re, uh, re, uh, progressive politics. Um, this is a pretty friendly and supportive crowd of you. But I'm curious as to what you think or how you think we can go about having conversations with people who may disagree with us politically, who may look, uh, who may look not look like us, 
and maybe who fall within a different tribe than us. You talked about you were the first Twitter president. Uh, Twitter's devolved into kind of a, wow. it's, 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 it's a wild. They're like I used to. Right, right, because it's nasty, right? It's and nasty. it's and So how can we have conversations with people, and how can we sort of seek unity in a country that seems so bitterly divided on race, gender, class, religion, uh, politics, even where you live, right? Where's all these things we seem to be divided upon. So, I mean, when I, if people have been to my town halls, I, I, I will talk about the issues just generally, but the whole theme of my campaign is about that, is that, you know, China's built 18,000 miles of high-speed rail, and our busiest rail corridor goes up between Boston and New York, runs a half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s. Um, our competitors are out educating us now when we used to be the best education. They're out researching and developing us because we've cut our investments in R&D. We now are not the most R&D intensive economy. I can go through the things in which we're falling behind. When I played football, you know. At Stanford? At Stanford, yes. <laughs> um, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> um, I used to know when we were gonna score a touchdown. When I heard that defense starting to fight amongst themselves, mm. blame each other, get on each other, I'm like, we're gonna blow through this team. And so we have this point in America where we actually agree a lot more than we disagree. I just said that on healthcare, that most Americans agree that, that the, in fact, over $1,000 a year, most Americans are paying for their prescription, the average American is paying for their prescription drug costs. Most Americans, we share common pain. Dirty water, uh, uh, unclean air, climate peril, and that's already affecting the Midwest, the Western fires flooding in this area, uh, 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 what's the sea rot level rise in the Gulf Coast. I can go through all the common pain we feel, but we've lost our sense of common purpose. That's why I'm running for president, because I believe we have to heal that. And I say we, not me. Again, if there's a presidential candidate comes before you and says, I will solve your problems, please get up and leave. Because we've heard that before. We do not need a savior. We have to save ourselves. And all of us have to take responsibility. If I am your president, I am I'm warning you, there's, there's 2020 elections stand for, not the year, but the number of candidates running, 2020. You've got a lot of options in this race. I'm gonna, if you elect me president, I'm asking more from you. I'm not gonna say sit back and watch me and, and, and the House and the Senate, let Nancy and I are gonna take this on. No, no. We have to start stepping up as a society and doing the things that we must do with more courageous empathy, greater civic grace to begin to see that we need each other desperately. And to your point, I'm telling you, as a guy who, when I crossed the floor, it was during the healthcare debate, so tensions were high, John McCain comes back to the floor of the United States Senate, just having been diagnosed with became terminal cancer, and I saw a guy that I've worked with before on bipartisan issues. I crossed the Senate floor in front of C-SPAN cameras. Sorry, C-SPAN, but I think like 15 <laughs> Americans saw me. Um, <laughs> and I hugged a John McCain. And then I get home, and I'm being torched on Twitter mm. by the, the cruelty there that how could you, they literally were saying, how could you hug baby killers, a baby killer? And I'm like, if, if we've gotten to the point in our politics where not only have we so demonized each other that we can't work together, that even, literally, even touching another person is such a betrayal of your tribe that we hate people in our own party. We are at a distraught present, and we have to start solving this. 
And, and, and so I know the power we have when we don't, you know, I, I walked into a town hall here and some big guy sees, again, this former Stanford tight end, former All-American football player. I can keep going if you want me to. <laughs> Puts his arm around me and says, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. Mm. And I look at the guy and I go, dude, that's a felony. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I go, look, sit down and let me tell you why the best technique, some tactic to beat this guy is not fighting him on his turf and his terms, not showing the worst of who we are. This is a moral moment in America, and it calls upon us to go for love. It's like I said a four-letter word to him that he found like oh, more offensive than other four-letter words, I would say, but this is a PG podcast. <laughs> but by it's PG-13. PG-13, but by the time <laughs> I finished making my case about how we beat this guy, that, that this is a moral moment that calls for us to appeal to the best of who we are. That, that, that he came and signed a commitment to caucus card. And so I, if you want somebody who wants to fight fire with fire, support that candidate. But I ran a fire department, I'm gonna tell you right now, it's not a good strategy. If you want somebody that when they go low, we go lower, support that person, it's just not me. I'm not running for that reason. I'm staying who I authentically am. If this country, if this party embraces me as their, as their standard bearer, God bless America, I'm gonna do it. If, if they don't embrace me, I'm gonna fall into ranks as every presidential candidate do and commit myself to getting elected who is chosen. But I am in this to heal, to bring together, to unite, to get this country to the high ground, not the quicksand of divisions and divisiveness. So here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna give our panelists one more question, and then I'm gonna do a lightning round with you. Okay. And then our volunteers will uh, ready the mics that we have to take a few questions oh, from the great. audience. All right. right. And we got some more water uh, coming from you uh, for you here in a sec too. All right. All right. So uh, I thought if this was PG-13, I thought you'd be pouring beer up here. No? Well, well we heard you didn't I drink. I don't drink. So, uh, <laughs> I'm more worried about you. We already I'm, had that conversation. I might get better questions if you have some alcohol in your glasses. <laughs> You're getting the questions we have time for, Senator. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're like, Corey, you're up in my house and you're insulting me. <laughs> so uh, here's the thing. Um, you're, you're in a title fight right now. This is not a tough go to run for president at such a critical moment in our nation's history. Things are crazy, you guys are releasing policies and plans, you're crisscrossing the country. How does a person like you stay centered? What do you do? I mean, if you, if you wanna get really personal and just look. Sure, I, as I'm, personal as you're willing to get. How do you stay centered? So, I, my foundation of my life is my faith, man. Mm. I mean, I was raised uh, in church, and I, I literally begin every day on my knees in prayer. And, um, and I take time to meditate and, and then get up and go out in my day. And look, there's a, there, I, I'm one of these people, and I, the reason why I feel a little uncomfortable talking about this, because I'm one of these people that says, before you tell me about your religion, first show it to me and how you treat other people. And as, if you're, and, and, and my faith, I mean, if you're, if you're black, if you're gay, if you're a woman, you know, the Christian record on, on justifying oppression. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, 
you know, I love people. I have a reverence before God's creation. And I, I see the soulfulness. I would much rather hang out, by the way, with a nice atheist than a mean Christian any day of the week. And, and so there's something about when I get on my knees in the morning and I, it, it centers me, it grounds me, it makes me feel a sense of awe and, and humility before the world and know that I'm, look, when I decide to run for president, and I, and I say that I have some very close friends who are running for president and we've had some, some of them I've had intimate conversations. It, it is a, could be a very frightening thing to step out on the national stage like this, where you have people coming at, digging in your, all, making stuff up. You don't need to be true anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why I have a, when I see my fellow people on the campaign, most of them, I hug them. Kirsten Gillibrand hugging today. You know, when I was waiting to speak in California, I'm hugging on Boot Edge Edge. I'm hugging on uh, 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 my dear friend, uh, Amy Klobuchar. I mean, I respect them for stepping out and putting their heart, their spirit, their ideas before the American people. So when I was doing my calculus, and my mom has always been a great counselor to me, uh, she challenged me to go to Newark. She, she literally said to me, she quoted to me the story of the talents, mm, about, and you, yeah. you know what exactly? The five talents. Yeah, right? like the, yeah. The, the master gave the three people got their talents, left to go away, two of them went out to the marketplace, risked them, took chances, mm -hmm. and, and, and made profits, presented to the, to the master who was proud of them, but the other one, he didn't. He thought he was doing, the, doing what he should have done, hides his talents, his buries talents. them. Yep. And, and he, the, he was rebuked. The master was upset with The master was upset. Yeah. And my mom was like, boy, tell me what you would do in your life if you knew you couldn't fail. Because I raised you, not to be fearless, everybody's got fear, but I raised you to guide your life by faith and not fear. And so I said, if I couldn't fail, I would move to the toughest neighborhood I could find in New Jersey. And, and start serving as a lawyer in that community. That's why I moved to the neighborhood I live in right now. And I still live there because faithful people uh, told me, if we elect you, don't leave us. Remember, stay rooted in the community. They took a chance on you because I had been in that city like a year before they elected me to city council. And so this was another one of the moments in my life. I literally was doing my pros and cons over a long period of time. And I realized suddenly the list of the reasons not to run were all about my ego and my fears. Mm. And all the reasons that I, to run were about my dreams for my nation, my hopes and aspiration, my love. And, and so now there are tough days, man. This, is a, this could be a dis discouraging pathway. I've seen every, can't, one day you're up, you know? I mean, I watched my friend Elizabeth Warren. One day they're praising her, next day they're trashing her. It's like you go through this cycle. You gotta have some serious fortitude to keep going forward. And what I keep telling myself is it's not about you, it's not about your ego, get out of your own way. You're, you know, it's one of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa, like somebody said to her, how do you measure success? And she says, God didn't call me to be successful. God called me to be faithful. And so this is a, a moment for me where I'm stepping out on faith. Every day I wanna do the best I can with letting people see me for truly who I am, what I'm passionate about, what my heart is and my head is. And if that's not enough, Heck, I'm, I'm a United States Senator. I can go back to service. You don't need a title to be of service. And so this is an incredible experience for me because what I'm meeting on the campaign trail is folks, they may pray different than me, they may not pray at all, but I see some courageous, fearless people who stand up in crowds like this and tell painful stories, demanding from me and other leaders to step up to the challenges of this time. And so I wanna meet the same level of faithfulness that I see in, in people in this country. And if we all do that, let go, let not, not be driven by our fears, but are driven by our faith and our love and our decency 
we will repair this nation and we will achieve what my aim is, is to get this nation to the mountaintop. Wonderful. So you've mentioned uh, getting creative, needing to get creative to solve significant problems, um, significant challenges. And you mentioned the border earlier tonight and painful stories as well just now. What would be your ideal immigration plan and what would those first two or three steps look like? So, I mean, that's the power of this thing is you go out and you meet with people and, and I, um, you know, I live in a city where with a lot of immigrants, and I've seen families separated. I know we're, the moral vandalism of separating families at the border, putting them in cages, but this immigration policy is under this president is tearing up my community in Newark. I was in Nevada with a 14-year-old who told me her friend, American citizen, who was assaulted, but she wouldn't come forward to talk about her assault because her parents were undocumented. And if they showed up at school, she thought they would be deported. So the first thing I'm gonna do is reverse the toxicity, the, the, the sinisterness of, a, of an immigration policy that hurts people, hurts our values, punishes American citizens, makes us less safe, because in my community, my immigrant community is afraid to even report crimes right now. They're being preyed upon and targeted. And so giving people the security to know that you have a president that sees your human dignity and is gonna stand up and have immigration laws that reflect our values. I'm gonna tell DACA children, you are Americans in every way but a piece of paper. I'm gonna tell people here that are on temporary protective status that this president is revoked, that you came here to this country escaping, escaping horrors and you are secure here. I'm gonna have immigration policies that first and foremost in my first 100 days show Americans and, and, and folks that are here who are doing jobs that we need in our economy, that they should not fear uh, uh, their president and the, and the policies. And then I'm gonna fight to do what, what, what Simeon was talking about. You know, right before I came to the Senate, my senior senator, a guy named Bob Menendez, worked across the aisle, the Gang of Eight, and had a bipartisan immigration bill. That if we passed it, by the way, for us, those people who see themselves as fiscally conservative, that, that piece of legislation, the CBO said it would have cut a trillion dollars from our deficit. Trillion dollars. Because by the way, when you let people come out of the shadows and pay taxes and have pathway, they actually increase our economy. And, and so I'm gonna be fighting, doing the things that I can do from the executive branch to stop the prioritization that he's doing right now, the, the tearing apart communities, the separating families, the hurting American citizens, but I'm also gonna start working on that kind of bipartisan bill that can keep us safe and secure, but make sure we get on the road again of being a nation who we've always been, which is a nation of immigrants, and they have made us strong. Since this is my last question, I'm gonna to try to make it a good one. Right. Um, and Simeon, I just feel this kinship with you, brother, because uh, I feel, I you, know, feel you and I have the best <laughs> haircut on this panel. The bald we cut, save right? a lot of money. We are economical, man. That's save a lot of money on products. True story. That's why I started cutting my hair. Is it Myself, really? yeah, because I couldn't afford it in college. Give me a haircut. Dude, I literally, so I used to go to, you go to Stanford, and you're like, where's the black community that knows that people can learn, know how to cut hair? And I'm sitting in a chair with a guy cutting my hair, and he just looked at me, and he goes, you need to stop paying me. Right. He goes, you need to do this yourself. Right. And you barely scrapping money together trying to give me a tip in, in change. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You need to you need to do this yourself. And that's when I started cutting my own hair. 
Um, that was a moment we had. The rest of this audience is like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, really, we had this. All, the, all the bald, bald brothers stand up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have um, a little ball caucus. <laughs> Me and Tim Scott. Oh, yeah. <laughs> First time in American history there have been two big, bald black guys in the Senate. <laughs> Kamala, th this is a true story. Last week, Kamala and I were talking. Tim Scott walked over and was like, Black caucus meeting. <laughs> First time in American history of three black people in the Senate. And Tim and I, uh, Tim and I passed a really powerful piece of legislation together. Again, bipartisan working yeah. across the aisle. Because he came to me and said, I want to do something about po rural poverty. And I said, well, I want to do something about poverty, too. We passed something called Opportunity Zones, which now as I walk around, I got stopped everywhere I go. I get stopped in towns where literally, like, I'm walking into a New Hampshire uh, big meeting like this, and some person grabs me and says, thank you, thank you. I go, why? You brought lots of jobs to my, uh, to my city through your Opportunity Zones. We're having, like, a multi-million dollar project. I'm like, could you please say that in my first question, please? <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, great, it's great to... Uh, to, to be able to find kinship with folks who I can write a dissertation on my disagreements with him, but two guys can come together, talk about how we cut our hair, <laughs> find some common ground to build towards legislation. Yeah. You, you mentioned Tim Scott, a black uh, United States senator from South Carolina. I want to return you to the question of like race in America. Um, uh, in 2018, we elected the first black president, Barack Obama. Uh, in 2006, Say that again? 2008. 2008, Jesus. Um, 2008, 2008. Um, I'm with you in prayer, man. I know, right? I know. I want to have a Jesus moment, man. Yeah, right? Uh, 2016, uh, Donald Trump was elected, and it feels like we've taken a really big step backwards on race in our country. Um, in many respects, you were Barack Obama before Barack Obama was a Barack Obama, right? Like you were this young, talented, smart, inspirational black figure in national politics who many thought could ascend to the nation's highest office. And here you are running for president um, as a person of color. If you're elected, what are you going to do about race in our society? Um, and how do you sort of reach people who may have been compelled um, by some of the rhetoric, some of the, the fear and the divisiveness that Donald Trump was able to capitalize on um, when he ran and won. So first of all, Barack Obama and I are very different. Um, he was born in one of our 50 states, Hawaii. <laughs> um, I was born in Washington, D.C., which is not a state yet. <laughs> um, yet. Look, um, if we can't deal with race in America, it will become our undoing. We will never achieve our potential. And, and we still have a lot of issues that we can't just cover over, that we, we have to be better at talking about. And, and so, you know, I, I've seen my responsibility to deal with this and have hard conversations. When I got to the United States Senate, I literally looked around and I'm like, this is one of the least diverse places I have ever been. And, and, and my job is to try to make the Senate and the Democratic Party better. So I went to Chuck Schumer with a great senator from Hawaii named Brian Schatz, and we said, these are things we'd like to work with you to see. Number one, we'd like to have the Rooney Rule, like the NFL does, mm. that if people are hiring people for top jobs in the Senate, they have to hire diverse people. And then I said number two, because I knew this as a manager of a city, a chief executive, if you want to... <laughs> You want to change things, then measure the people you're managing, because people care about how they're measured. So I said, could you, could you make it a rule in the Senate that every single Democratic senator has to publish their diversity statistics? Mm. Because when I got to the Senate, you, I looked around the Judiciary Committee, not only were there no black senators on it, but I couldn't find black people on staffs. 
talk about being in the room when it happens, our judiciary committee is affecting black communities in a disproportionate ways. And so he published those statistics, and amazingly, <laughs> guess what's happened to the number, much of the diversity in the United States Senate, and people, women and, and minorities, Asian Americans, Latinos, it's really incredible. So I, I say to you, this means us having uncomfortable conversations. Because King, the whole letters from the Birmingham jail, were, it, was his, it wasn't a letter to racists, it was a letter to white moderates who were like, why are you dredging all this up? And, and he said, you can't heal something by covering it over. We're creating creative conflict in order to expose the unfinished business of America. And that's why when I talk about things like the criminal justice system, I wanna point out the racial disparities. That's when I talk about things like the fact that we lead the, the globe in maternal mortality, but black women have three, four times higher rates of dying in childbirth. Asthma, black and white kid, control for everything but race, that black kid's almost like 10 times more likely, if I have my number correct, to die from asthma complications. And so these things have legacies and a dark past that we have to have constructive conversations about. But we have to make sure we have those conversations in a way, you know, Brene Brown, I, I, I really have a lot of respect for her and her writing, and she says it's hard to hate up close, mm. so pull people in. And, and, and that's something that we all have a responsibility to do is to try to find ways to have the dialogue or to force the conversation or to create the environment where we can deal with these issues. And, and, and so I, I see a president right now who is spewing r racist things. Is, is, I mean, for us in the New Jersey area, it's like the Central Park Five. I can go through all the things, his whole career. And, 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 and he has this powerful moral platform. The way he talks about black women in Congress, the way he talks about uh, black athletes, that affects those words. So the way he called, here's your PG-13, the way he called African countries shithole countries, those words don't die, they, they reverberate, they shape, they mold. And that's why I, a lot of what I want to return to the presidency is that somebody who's very conscious of using their platforms with the intention not of pushing people down but lifting folks up, with the intention of not to spew hate, but to try to ignite a, a, a more beloved community. And that has to be a conscious intention, and, and that's the kind of president I'll be. I've asked Stacy if I could ask you another question. Okay. And he said yes. Because it, it's piggybacking off of what you were just describing um, in the context of Sim's question. You, so in a recent interview, you said the founders were imperfect geniuses. Our founders were imperfect geniuses. They wrote a lot of our bigotries into the Constitution. If you think about how we've overcome those things, it's always been creating first calls to consciousness, speaking truth about the injustices, and then bringing together those uncommon coalitions. So must these be experienced sequentially? And if so, where are we in that sequence? No, I mean, look, Martin Luther King said very clearly, I may not be able to legislate you to love me, but I can pass legislation that's gonna stop you from lynching me. And, and I mean, there are people being hurt right now by laws and rules that I'm all about changing right away. I mean, the fact that I live in a nation that if you're gay in America, you can put your pictures on, 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 on Facebook and then literally your boss finds out about it in the majority of states you could be fired just for being gay and have no legal recourse. I mean, I, I remember, people watch the Green Book, but I stories in my family about having to take cross-country drives to now to knowing that there are, there are store owners that could deny service to a gay couple. 
just because they're gay? That is so contrary to, to so I'm sorry. I'm, you give me the power of the presidency, I'm gonna be up about protecting folks from violence, protecting folks from discrimination, protecting people uh, 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 from, 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 from white supremacy. So I'm not saying that, that, that this isn't important, but I'm just saying that every single massive move, you could call it progressive leaps, workers' rights, women's rights, civil rights, voting rights, has always been done because of Jesse Jackson might call it the Rainbow Coalition. It, when, when people from differing backgrounds, differing economic statuses even, came together and, and were willing to fight for that injustice. And so for me, it is very important to try to learn from my history. My parents actually, who never shirked at my dinner table from telling me the ugly truths about their experiences. Even my mom, black woman in the workplace, early IBM executive, she came home with some stories. My dad would come home and just say, shh, shh, shh. And then he'd go, go in and put some Coltrane on. <laughs> and it was almost like he could decompress some days from the kind of things he did at work. But yet, they, at the same time, they spoke to me of the power of, of the love of allies. When the, when, the, when the real estate agents wouldn't show me, show our family homes 50 years ago this month, my parents got a white couple to volunteer to pose as them in the home buying process. And on the day of the closing for the white couple, they didn't show up, a volunteer lawyer, Jewish guy, came. And the, the real estate agent didn't even, didn't even capitulate then. He was breaking the law. He gets up and punches my dad's lawyer in the face and sigs a dog on my dad. And every time my dad told that story as I was growing up, the dog would get bigger, much bigger. <laughs> Boy, I fought, a pack of, I fought a pack of wolves to get you in this house. But, but my parents told me that I am the manifestation of a conspiracy of love. Mm. That when the laws weren't there, it was people who met in secret, even though it was illegal to do so, to, 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 to plot the building of the greatest infrastructure project this country has ever seen, metaphorically, the Underground Railroad. They, they told me stories about people who met in church basements plotting, black and white, to go out and get beaten down to try to expose the bigotry. Frederick Douglass's last meeting, people don't know, read more about Frederick Douglass, please. You go into my office, you get a picture of Frederick Douglass, you get the map of the Central War, the first people to take a, take a chance on me. His, he was led the first, he was a union organizer. He was the president of a major union, workers' rights. His last meeting before he died was a suffrage meeting. He knew about the intersectionality of, of all ideals of justice. And so for me, I, I'm going to use the powers of the presidency to affirm the individual rights and protections of every American, to call out things like, why is the banking industry not loaning to women at the same rates? as Why is access to capital, small business association, not doing it? Those things I will be fighting, but the bigger call that I think is necessary to create an environment for us to make progressive leaps forward uh, is to be the kind of president that calls us to create the coalitions of our past, the kind of unity that we need. Uh, and I, we don't need everybody, but the kind of, you know, I, I, I say this all the time, that patriotism, that love of country that, that starts with loving your country, men and women. If we can inspire more of that in our nation, I promise you LGBTQ rights, defense of women's uh, uh, contraceptive uh, uh, access, a lot of the things that seem so hard and impossible that people want to change filibuster rules for and do other things, which I'm, I'm keeping those options on the table. But really what we have right now is the need for our country to 
get a, a, a stronger muscle of empathy and love for one another to do like we did in the past where we stood up for each other and fought for each other and joined in common coalition and common cause to make our nation be who we say it is when we put our hands on our hearts and swear that oath that we really will be a nation of liberty and justice for all. So I want to make uh, uh, call another audible here. Um, we've got a lot of folks here who certainly probably have a lot of questions, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time and the time of the venue. So I'm going to play a little lightning round game here, sure. and then perhaps uh, maybe after that, yeah, I won't run away. Stick around and and uh, answer questions and fulfill my selfie addiction. Okay, cool. Yes. <laughs> so we won't. Uh, we'll skip the uh, audience Q and A for this uh, one time, but uh, the good senator has promised to stay around for a little bit and chat with you all individually. So are you ready for the lightning? round? I am ready for the lightning round. Okay. First question is pretty hard. Do you believe that Russia interfered with our federal elections last cycle? Yes. Okay. And I believe we have a president that is not protecting our nation right now. Okay. And, and, and if he's not going to defend America, he needs to get up out the way. Okay. So part of the way we could begin the process of getting him up out the way, yes. uh, aside from uh, winning uh, in 2020, would be to bring articles of impeachment against the president. Do you support that? I, I support, support starting impeachment proceedings because he is now saying that he is above the checks and balances and the mandates of the Constitution. He is trying to be an authoritarian leader where he is above the law. It is clearly the job of Congress to hold accountable the executive. And he's denying subpoena requests, requests for witnesses, requests for information and documents. We cannot tolerate in our society a president that flouts the law, resists the mandates of the Constitution, and acts like an authoritarian ruler who's above it. And so starting impeachment proceedings, and by the way, I'm not sure if this is a politically good strategy or not, but I know that 20, 30, 40 years from now, when my grandparents, my grandchildren ask me, when we had a president that was tilting our nation back towards authoritarianism, what did you do in that moral moment? I want to say that I stood up and said he is not above the law, he should be held accountable, and we should use impeachment proceedings in order to get the resources and information we know we need to check this out. Green New Deal. Do you support the precepts of the Green New Deal? Uh, I support the Green New Deal because we need, and this came from young people who are like, let's have the boldest, most ambitious plans possible to save our planet from peril. And I, by the way, you read the military's reports about what's gonna be going on 20, 25 years from now when I'm the president's age, it's, it's literally catastrophic what they're, in terms of global famines and uh, uh, migrant crises and environments that are ripe for extremism. Wow. Uh, not to mention the billions of dollars of being damage being done to the United States from the perils of climate change. The cost of not acting is too great right now. And so if, as President of the United States, just like when I was when I was mayor, because a lot of us mayors saw the problem back then when Bush wouldn't join the Kyoto Accords, and we stood up in coalition and said that we are going to, since we produce significant amount of the greenhouse gases, we're going to be aggressive about this. And I told my city council, I'm like, this is not gonna be an issue that we deal with time to time. It's going to be the lens with which we do everything. Mm -hmm. Our prison and reentry programs, we're getting men and women to work on plantings and greenings in our, in our, and to pull carbon out of the air in our city. Our, our, our construction programs were about let, uh, uh, platinum lead standards and 
environmental retrofit. So as President of the United States, everything I do, um, from the ag bill that, that we could be using to incentivize crubber's crops, to transportation department on transitioning to electrification of our of our of our of our uh, of our uh, transportation sector, all the way to foreign policies, not just rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, which I'll do in the first hours as president. It is actually using everything tool we have, diplomacy, foreign aid, all of this, because we only produce 15% of the problem. We're punching above our weight. We're only 5% of the globe's population. But this problem can't be solved by America alone. We've got to go from being a denier country, led by a, a president that's doing that, to a country that's leading by example and using every lever it has to get the rest of the planet Earth's countries to deal with this crisis. Right now in this country, uh, women's reproductive rights are under attack. As president, what would you do to address this issue? <laughs> Repeal the Hyde Amendment. Uh, make, make, make Roe v. Wade uh, 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 codified through the legislature by passing laws to protect those rights. Uh, stopping the assault on Planned Parenthood and fully funding Planned Parenthoods around this country. Uh, putting judges on the Supreme Court, the Circuit Court, and District Court who will affirm Roe v. Wade. But even more than that, this is a bigger problem. I will create a White House Office of Reproductive Freedom to make sure we coordinate amongst departments on all issues that empower women. And that's not just abortion care, which is health care. It's not just access to contraceptive exception, which is health care if you've ever had endometriosis and other uh, uh, challenges. But it's also about the maternal mortality rate. It's, all, it's also about uh, uh, low-income women who are really the most being attacked in many of these states. Uh, it's about them having the resources from transportation uh, to healthcare that they need to have control and re true reproductive freedom. So this next one isn't a question, it's a thank you for introducing the Algorithmic Accountability Act. Yes, explain what that is, please. Now you go ahead and explain what that is. Um, so, again, <laughs> Again, I've lived in low-income black and brown communities for decades, and I see how people's algorithms, they run an algorithm, and, and their algorithm could be very biased against someone because of their geography or their race. I, I've had to fight this in the Senate with a lot of things that, that, that our Bureau of Prison uses to assess the dangerousness or recidivism likelihood. If you start using zip code, then heck, I, I'm gonna be caught up in that algorithm. If you start using college attainment, well, that has a, racial disparities and are baked in it about who has access to do things like go to college. So when you start expanding that now to credit worthiness, you start expanding that to uh, issues that affect your economic well-being, issues that affect uh, your health care uh, and access. When, they, when private companies are now using these algorithms, when Facebook is deciding what you see and what you don't see based upon the algorithms they're running, if those algorithms have those kind of biases baked in, uh, it's going to have a multiplier effect in our economy, in our culture. And so we need to start doing things right now to governing that space and make sure that, that we are not compounding discrimination and bias. Uh, and, and I'm very proud of that bill. And I'm, I can't, I'm very, you were the first person in the presidential campaign to ask me about it, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. you can, uh, we've got our good friends at the Darkest Horse to thank for that. They brought that up in the earlier interview. So thank you to Shante and Narada for that. 
I got Ashante, Shante. Shante. I'm sorry. Uh, like Beyonce. Oh, I said Ashante. Ashante. Oh, okay. it's my dad jokes. I got to get at least okay. one in an hour. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> we got two more questions in rapid fire, and then we will um, um, conclude here. Thank you. What are you reading right now? What are you watching on Netflix, Hulu? What are you listening to? Please don't like. <laughs> Please don't make me tell you what I'm watching on Netflix. I talked about what I'm reading. I would now we need to know what you're watching. <laughs> so falling asleep is ever since I became a mayor, I, I have a lot of challenges sometimes falling asleep. So I try to watch things that are not gonna like, you know, not sure. I, I love yeah. documentaries. I do this, I do the same thing. Yeah, so yeah. I put stuff on. Yeah. So um, You have a good interview style, like yeah. you know how to use pauses <laughs> where you just let the guy suffer and yeah, simmer I'll for a while. Let you, yeah. Okay, so last night, um, so I watch a lot of things that you would think a, a person much younger than me would watch, uh, cartoons and things like that. I, I won't even too. go there, I, I but I'll just confess to you the thing I was watching last night. All right, let's hit us with it. It's, it's a, it's it's called Supernatural, and it's. See, you notice that the people over here that are 20, 30 years younger than me were like, yeah! <laughs> um, but that's what I watched last night. It's a really, Sam and Dean, my brothers, they're really, they're really, it's only, only like, maybe, it's actually been on 15 seasons. That's, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, somewhat, that's the popularity of it. So that's my show that I, I, I'm watching. Okay. I often have these obscure shows. When I first ran for mayor of the city of Newark, this now I'm, I don't know why I'm doubling down on my embarrassment, <laughs> but I had a show back then that I was watching on, on DVDs and to help myself fall asleep, a classic show called Buffy the Vampire. Oh. It's yeah, so I like things that are sort of, you know, sci-fi, supernatural-ish. When I'm looking for just candy, I okay. can watch those. Yeah. Okay. I'm right. obsessed with, you know, superheroes and, you know, Star Trek. <laughs> These are the things that, that you outed. Did you say Star Trek? I, I am a deep up Trekkie. Wow. And wow. Again, yeah, yeah, I really. Good for you. You know what it is? It's, it has such a boldly optimistic view of the future of humanity. I've been saying this for so yeah. long. It's like you watch it and it, it just speaks to what you hope we will be. One yeah. Day. yeah. It's like what the West Wing did for politics. Yes. Star Trek. Yes. It's very aspirational. Humanity. And they yeah. deal with tough moral issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, what are you reading? Right now, um, so I'm. Uh, I read multiple books at a time. Uh, David Brooks has this uh, a great book about. I think it's the Second Mountain. Uh, really, it's about the moral challenge of of men and women, where we go through our life thinking what's important is this ambition, my business, my career, and then often, usually something happens. Maybe it's you just you you have a sickness or can't. Suddenly you realize what's important is human connection, human decency, love a soul-sourcing joy, not ephemeral pleasure. And he speaks a lot to the culture of our country where we now seem to say, what's the matter with you as opposed to what matters to you? Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very good book. Um, I, I wanna thank uh, uh, Keenan Judge, a great legislator here who gave me a, a book that I just actually had downloaded uh, to Audible, which I will listen to, a Newark company, by the way. Um, but it's uh, Doris Kearns, Goodwin's book about leadership, which I'm really excited about getting into. Um, I am uh, uh, starting the biography of a, the only president I share a birthday with, uh, who's a really interesting person, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, it's an incredible uh, biography out now of a, of a, uh, of, by the uh, same person who wrote Hamilton, upon which the play is built on. So I, I go through a lot of different um, books at a time, sure, and yeah. look, and right now I'm really looking for things that speak to the moral character of our country, and uh, can help me sort of um, 
be the leader I aspire to be, because I think that this is a, as I, you've heard me say already, this is a moral moment, this is a moral moment that's testing the values of our nation and our connections between each other. And I think the larger crisis of our country, which is not government can't do it, but all of us have to take responsibility for doing it is, you know, look, we are, our life expectancy is going down now because of deaths of despair, suicides and addictions. There's something, I think, going on in our society right now where we are seeing that feeling of purpose, that feeling of what matters, that feeling of that we're all part of something bigger than ourselves that's being eroded by other forces, and a lot of them, again, are beyond government. The fact that we all have these phones that we look at and we feel little bursts of cortisol every time we see we, something got liked, and that becomes a, a response, and we're kids who use high school tough, but now when you go home, high school follows you home because you're still using these platforms. There's a lot of these cultural things that are happening that are eroding what's important. We're mistaking wealth with worth. We're mistaking celebrity with significance, popularity with purpose. I think there's a lot of things going on that I am trying to get my hands around it. If I'm president of the United States, I want to be the best possible person. Not just can speak to that, these things, but because words are only so strong, but can try to evidence these things in my leadership and my service to others and to celebrate other people who are finding amidst this new this, this new era of America to find a way to get us back to our North Star. Yeah, great. Final, <laughs> final question that I have um, before we wrap up today, and perhaps a supplication, if you will. Let's say I had a direct line into the younger generations, and they were gonna listen to you, and you could give them one piece of advice what would you say to the young people of this country? I would tell them the most common way that people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And that every great social movement that inspired me, the uprisings in Tiananmen Square, the uprisings in Soweto, the modern civil rights movement, at the center of that were very young people. And this is their moment. This presidential election is for people spanning from their 30s to their 70s, and the reality is, is what our nation needs really is those younger folks in this country to take the helm of this nation now, not to wait to lead. I've seen this in kids from Parkland, I see this in activists in Newark, that these young people who, who see their power, know their power, are saying, we're not gonna wait, we're gonna lead right now. Um, we need this younger generation, especially in this political process, because when young folk vote, they change things. You know, you don't have to occupy anything. If, if we saw voting rate levels go up amongst young people to 40, 50%, because young Republicans agree on the urgency of climate change, the problem of college debt, the urgent need to start, stop gun violence. And so we, we desperately need generation, uh, um, generation Z, as well as millennials now, to start leading this country. And, and my biggest encouragement was don't wait, don't listen to all the messages you get from society that tell you you're not enough that you don't have enough money, that you're not good enough, you're not old enough. You are enough right now. History has shown it. This is your moment. This is your time. Help us lead this nation forward. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator Cory Booker. <laughs> folks, we want to thank the good people at C-SPAN for covering this event. The good folks at the Graduate Hotel for hosting us, our media partners, Little Village Magazine, 
our producer, Veronica Tesler, our sound engineer, Sam Alexakis, our special guest, co-host, Akwe Inji. Thank you all. Please remember that what we do is a free service, so if you feel so compelled, please leave a few dollars or some change for us so we can continue to bring free programming to your community. Thanks again for having